from phx.fm. This is Conversation with the Rabbi, featuring open, honest dialogue and sometimes unconventional perspectives on the world we all share. Welcome to another Conversation with the Rabbi. I'm Adrian McIntyre. Our guest for today's conversation is Dr. Zohadi Jasser. He is the founder and president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, author of a book in 2012, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, An American Muslim Patriot's Fight to Save His Faith. He's committed to a variety of issues that we've discussed on this show, and I'm looking forward to this conversation, hosted, of course, by Rabbi Michael Bayo. CEO of the East Valley Jewish Community Center. Good morning, Rabbi. Good morning, Adrian, and good morning, Dr. Jasser. Thank you very much for joining us for a conversation with the Rabbi. I truly look forward to this conversation. And uh, again, welcome, uh, Alan Usalan. Alan Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. We like to start off every conversation by giving our guests a chance to give us a bit of an overview of their work their commitments, why they do what they do. Tell us a little bit about that, about the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, why it started, what it's doing, and kind of what brought you to this point. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for all that you do. Um, Yeah, I came to uh, Phoenix in 99 after serving 11 years in the Navy and uh, then joined my father in private practice uh, here in internal medicine. Uh, Then 9-11 happened. And uh, on the Front page of the Arizona Republic after 9-11 on November 4th, uh, 2001 was a piece that said American Muslims torn between loyalty to the U.S. and loyalty to Islam. And I called the reporters and I said, where'd you find these crazy people that you interviewed? And they interviewed most of the imams in town, including some imams in Tucson. They were blaming Israel. They blamed conspiracy theories. They said Al-Qaeda was a CIA operation and that it was a Uh, you know, all these other conspiracy theories. And I said, you know, these are not normal Muslims. I don't know who you interviewed. So they let me write an op-ed in which I I posited the opposite. And a number of Muslims thanked me for it. I said, actually, not only are we not torn, terrorism is a symptom of a bigger problem, which is political Islam, and that Al-Qaeda, Hamas, and a lot of these organizations are natural byproducts of a political supremacist ideology that hates the West, that seeks to, in a nihilistic way, destroy the West. Well, we had some positive feedback, but also a lot of negative feedback. I was attacked nationally by many of the Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups, uh, including the Council on American Islamic Relations. I was attacked in my medical organization by uh, local uh, Arab Muslim uh, uh, leaders that uh, did not like what I had to say. And basically we realized we had to form another organization to begin to represent Muslims that was not part of the Islamist establishment that ran many of the mosques and have represented Muslims for so long in America. So we formed the American Islamic Forum for Democracy in 2003, a year and a half later, we had formed a a mission statement. Uh, We uh, had a number of sessions for strategic uh, analysis to figure out what we needed to do. And basically we built a set of principles. We said, this is not gonna be simply to counter terrorism. That's a symptom. We, We formed on some principles that included defending the US constitution, Uh, defeating radical Islam through the separation of mosque and state, which is a direct attack on political Islam, if you will, and the Islamic state concept. And we said ultimately that you would not ever achieve national security in America unless we began to have Muslims lead an effort to dismantle the idea of the Islamic state. And then we had a rally against terrorism in 2004 that was at Patriot Square in which we called it Standing with Muslims Against Terror. And in my book, I talk about that whole endeavor and how complicated it was to have Muslims make a simple statement and how, again, 
Israel became the focus instead of uh, our rally. And we uh, basically disinvited many of the folks that wanted to make Israel the focus. We said it's about Muslims standing against terrorism. And slowly we began to build a body of work against uh, the theological underpinnings of political Islam. I then testified to Congress in 2011 on the invitation by Peter King and have since testified seven, eight times on religious freedom issues. I've served on the U.S. Co uh, Commission on International Religious Freedom appointed by Senator McConnell and have done a lot of media work in which we basically said, you know, our mission has three missions at the American Islamic Forum. Number one is public engagement on the education about political Islam. And I think we've been very successful. I have, you know, trying not to be too uh, um, boastful about it, but I do think that the national conversation shifting out of the, the terrorism uh, conversation to political Islam and Islamism, where the term Islamist is more common, I think we have some something to do with what that has evolved in the last 19 years since 9-11. Second, our mission is our Muslim reform movement, and we can talk about that later, about where reform is necessary. And third is we work with government and academics and others on, on what is the process and, and uh, policy that should happen. We have a program called Radical Islam for Law Enforcement, uh, government strategy, and, and uh, things like the Abraham Accords and others are part of really uh, consistent with what we see as domestic and foreign uh, process. And we have a leadership program for Muslim youth called the Muslim Liberty Project. Dr. Jasser, thank you very much for, um, again, explaining to us the breadth of your work. Uh, but with your permission, I would like to start a little bit back in history. Because uh, as you said, your work really starts post, uh, your, your public work not as a doctor, but as a, as a, as a, as a, as a public worker with your nonprofit organization starts post 9-11. And I would like to take us a little bit back uh, through history. And we know that Jews have lived in Muslim countries since time immemorial, uh, since uh, uh, Islam took over whatever parts of the Middle East they took over, there were Jews living there in many of these countries, many of these places. And one thing for sure we can say is that the Jewish experience under Islam usually feared better than under Christianity for obvious theological reasons. And at the same time, I also am not a... a a strong believer in, in the myth of the golden age uh, where Jews had the perfect life under Islam. Uh, and that is at the core of it because Islam is not only a faith, but it's a way of life and it is political. So could you please explain a, a little bit better what you mean when you say that you want to fight against political Islam, because Islam at its core, very similar to Judaism, is an all-encompassing religion way of life, where politics is part of the religion, and we cannot separate the two. We cannot do it in Judaism, and we cannot, in my humble opinion, truly do it in Islam, or if you can, please explain to us what do you mean? 
Well, thank you. No, those are great questions. And actually, before I get to the essence of political Islam, I do want to address sort of the plight of Jews under either Christianity or Islam, which is really important. There's no doubt. I mean, a lot of my background and understanding is, is based on reading Bernard Lewis and Bernard Lewis's book on the Jews of Islam. Uh, I've read a lot of Maimonides' work, and uh, I, I, he's one of my heroes as a physician, philosopher, and a theologian. I, I, uh, uh, try to uh, fancy myself sort of uh, in his uh, tradition. Um, so, uh, and a lot of Maimonides' work was done under Islam. Absolutely, all of it, yeah. The, yeah, all of it. So, so there's no doubt uh, that they fared pretty well. Um, but you're right, the, it, it wasn't great. It wasn't perfect. There was a, a lot of reform necessary. Um, and uh, I will say that, uh, you know, the problem with Jews, uh, uh, the Jewish community in Muslim majority countries is not just related to political Islam. It's also related to Arabism. I always tell the folks that say that, well, Assad is uh, fantastic uh, for Jews or minorities. ISIS is worse. They're the same. Uh, there are no Jews left in Syria long before ISIS uh, ever came. It's because the Ba'ath party cleanse the state of anyone who was rejecting of the Ba'ath system, which is a national socialist fascist party. And the rates of anti-Semitism throughout the Muslim majority world are in the 90 percentile. If it's 85 percent, they say it's pretty good. And I can tell you 30, 40 percent penetration of political Islamic parties and ideas tells you that the other 30, 40 percent are Arabists, are Arab fascists that are like the Fatah versus Hamas or Ba'ath in Iraq versus the uh, Islamists or the Khomeinists in Iran versus the other sort of national fascists. Same, same thing in Turkey. So bottom line is, is there's a combination there of sort of a national secular fascism that plays a role in the anti-Semitism. Back to the main question is political Islam. At the, at the time we formed the American Islamic Forum, the first person to call me and sort of pull my ear and tell me to come over to her house was my mom. She's like, Zudi, are you trying to say that Islam is not part of your life? Uh, it's part of our life. It's part of everything you do. It's why you're in medical ethics. It's why you're a doctor. And I said, mom, absolutely. We are not trying to separate faith from a person's heart. We believe just like America, that this country is under God, that yes, God is a part of everything we do, but it's not under Islam. It's not under Christianity. The reason the word Christian is not in the founding documents is that the central essence of religious liberty in America is a personal practice of faith. They didn't want to have a debate about which form of Christianity and which, which interpretation. They said, yes, just like de Tocqueville talks about in democracy in America, the reason you don't need a military rule in America is because you have such a faithful, devout country. You're not worried about your neighbor committing an act of terror and, and terrorizing you because they have a moral compass. And I've always said, you can't defeat the dictators in the Middle East unless the general population develops a recurrence, not a revivalism of Islam, but a reform of a deep faith based in God that's morally centered on uh, compassion and, and uh, humility and honesty. So we're not trying to divorce people of their faith, but political Islam by definition is where you have a political party that believes that the identity of the state and its flag is Islam and the legal system, the instrument for that state, the legal instrument is that the Quran is the source, not a source. That's not a nuance. That's a very significant difference. I believe the Quran is a source of law for me, but it's certainly not the source and it's not the primary one. Uh, interpretations are related, et cetera. So common law is involved, a lot of other things. So an Islamic state, is one in which the Islamic, the jurisprudence of the state is preeminently run by clerics 
and the everything comes from the Quran versus it coming from reason. And this is, I think, a huge distinction. And the parties themselves, an Islamic party is an essence of political Islam, where the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, or the AKP, or Jamaat Islami in Pakistan, or Hamas, they believe that their platform, just like Republican Party, Democratic, their platform has planks that are related to advancing Islamic law. So to me, that's what we're fighting. If you say, you know, the perfect example is Abdul Rahman Wahid, the former president of Indonesia. He wrote a book called The Illusion of the Islamic State. Devout Muslim. And he said, you know, the front of his book, it says, you can have a state of Islam in your heart, but we do not want an Islamic state. So that is a very important distinction between believing in your faith of Islam, but yet wanting to impose a, a quasi or actually a literal theocracy like we see in Saudi Arabia, et cetera. And America, I think, is the best place to have this conversation because it's not a theocracy. It fought against theocracy. And when I testified to Congress, I repeatedly told them, I'm here because Americans should be able to have a conversation that it is not anti-Muslim bigotry to fear Islamism. Islamophobia is a, con is a construct to prevent us from debating Islamic theology, which we should be doing. And I rejected that term, and we should be able to have this conversation. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to try to unpack uh, a lot of the things that you said. And one of the things that uh, striked me was you used the term Arabism. Uh, oh, and uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I, I presume, and I may be completely wrong, that you are hinting that there is that within the Muslim world, that made of you know, I believe it's a billion, a billion and a half people. So it's a lot of people. You have people of all walks of life, of all different cultures and backgrounds from. Asia all the way uh, in, uh, you know, Asia all the way to Europe. So what do you mean when you talk about Arabism? So to me, Arabism, you know, um, there's the mildest forms in which are, I think one of the main pathologies of the American State Department is it's run by a lot of Arabists that were uh, uh, genuflecting to the monarchs and a lot of the other fascists that uh, uh, ran, run the Middle East. But Arabism is to Arabs what Nazism is to Germans. It's basically a belief of the supremacist uh, idea that the Arab race was uh, selected to lead Islam, that the Arab language is a, uh, a predominant language over everybody else. My father and my grandfather left Syria because of what the Ba'athist Arabists did to destroy that country. Um, and, uh, you know, Jamal Abdel Nasser was the classic Arabist in Egypt. He tried to unite Egypt and Syria, but he was basically a fascist uh, that believed in, in the supremacy of sort of trying to unite the Arab world. Now, of the 1.67 billion Muslims, 400 million are Arabs. And, uh, you know, the Arab states uh, were divided up after uh, World War II. And a lot of what happened was the failure of nationalism. So nationalism in and of itself, if you look at the European experiment, I, I completely get it when many of my Jewish friends fear nationalism because, you know, a lot of the democracies reverted back to some of the horrific fascists in history from the early 20th century. But successful nationalism is what our work is at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy is. Successful nationalism is like America, where the flag has a meaning in which our troops are moral troops that serve to liberate. Like yesterday, recently was June 6th. 
Our troops went to Normandy to liberate Europeans from their oppressors, not to colonize them, not to imperialize them. So our flag was about helping others achieve the ability to get closer to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and to be closer to being free as individuals and, and through liberation. So this is really, even though the Ba'athist literally in Arabic means the liberating party, uh, the, the actual on the ground definition was one in which they nationalized every, uh, my, my grandfather lost his vehicles, lost his business. It was stolen by the government. He was in prison for three years. And then my father escaped to Lebanon and came to the US. They fought against that fascism. Uh, so Arabism itself is one of the reasons why the, the conspiracy theories are uh, abound. And just like uh, many fascists in the far left or far right will use religion as an opium, as Marx said, many Islamist movements work closely with these. Khalid Mish'al, the head of Hamas, based, was based in Damascus for 17, 18 years. And he worked closely with Assad. And, and yet when the revolution started, they pulled out and started to side with the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood against Assad because supposedly now they were going to get rid of the secular fascist of Assad, even though they were working with him. And now we see Hamas fueled by the same people that fuel Assad, which is uh, Iran. So many of these extremists will work together. They're two sides of a coin. But that, that point is one of, of, of fascism, be it Islamofascism, a political Islam, or secular fascism of Arabism. So my question is, I have actually two questions, maybe the same, it's the same question or two sides. What are supposed to do regular, good, moral Muslims that are the majority of the Muslims in the world? What can they do who have their voice heard. I truly believe that the overwhelming majority of Muslims are good, honest people, like the majority of people of any religion. They want to wake up in the morning, provide for their families, have a good life. But we don't hear of them as much. When there were demonstrations in various capitals of the world, uh, against uh, Israel or specifically against the Jews, I did not hear, unfortunately, voices of uh, Muslims that were shouting against those anti-Semitic voices. And I'm not talking about legitimate um, um, debate over Israeli government policies. I'm talking about straight anti-Semitism. I was talking today to a friend of mine in New Jersey that uh, I haven't spoken to him in a few weeks, and he was run down during those days of the demonstrations in New York and New Jersey by somebody because he's clearly a Jewish rabbi, and now he's lying in bed in a hospital all broken up. So uh, these things happen, and they happen very close to home. Uh, my kids were attacked about a year ago when I and them were walking home from a synagogue. Uh, these things happen all the time, all over the world. So I'm talking about straight anti-Semitism. Where are the voices of the majority of Muslims? This is why our reform work is so important, is uh, 
Um, you know, my podcast, Reform This, uh, is about that. I just had, did an episode on anti-Semitism last week because, you know, you don't take folks that are uh, um, sort of raised and brought up in these cultures. You're right. Most of them are moderate. Uh, they're not terrorists, um, but they haven't. Uh, to say that uh, the majority of them are Jeffersonian Democrats with an enlightened reason philosophical education would be absurd. That that has not happened. Uh, you you know Reagan ha had a great quote in which he said it takes one generation f to lose uh, freedom, and uh, that's after you've had it. In those societies, uh, they were enlightened societies until the 12th, 13th century. Yes, for 700. If the recipe of Islam was bad itself as a recipe you would have not had six, 700 years of enlightenment and, and 4,000 different schools of thought of Sharia. But now the problem, the disease, and Bernard Lewis's other book, The, the Crisis in Islam, or What Went Wrong was another book he had. Um, if you look at what went wrong, he talks about there's been six, 700 years now, especially 400 years of Ottoman arrest of enlightenment in which Arabic was outlawed. You can't reform Islam without taking the, it was like when the Catholic church wanted to control Christianity and Catholicism, it outlawed Latin. It did not allow the laity to understand the language of the scripture. Same thing happened with uh, Islam. Most Muslims, let alone the, you know, one billion that are not Arabic, uh, the majority of Arabs don't under, I mean, I speak Arabic fluently and yet the Arabic of the Quran is extremely difficult. So I was blessed to have a father that translated it and I was able to look at the passage that says, uh, do not, that supposedly the Saudis translated as do not take Jews as friends, when in fact the word is not friends, it's awliya, which is a related to a witness in a legal proceeding for a family court, which yeah, you wouldn't take Jews or Christians. So God cannot be conflicted in which in one chapter he says we can marry a Jew to be the mother of our children and not have to convert her. And on the other hand, say she can't be our friend. That doesn't make any sense. It's an intentional mistranslation by Salafi literalists that want to demonize Jews and, and that needs to be reformed. So the, the millions that came to the West that now you see are not demonstrating, that are not manifesting a Western love for their other minorities uh, uh, are the ones that have not had a, a, a civil society that allowed critical thinking and questioning authority and uh, a society that was, even though they knew, and, and the best thing I've seen happen in the last 20 years was the Arab awakening of 2011. You finally saw millions in the streets rejecting the oppression and the socialism and the, uh, um, the, the terror of the states of Egypt and Syria and, and Libya and, you know, Iran had its uh, awakening in 2009, but it didn't take hold uh, with its revolution. But in Lebanon and elsewhere, we've seen a lot of this. Now, unfortunately, because there was no civil society, the Islamists, after a year or two, started to take over because not only internally, they had the mosques in which to radicalize the population. It wasn't the majority, but it was a plurality that were radicalized. Then you had Qatar, Turkey, Saudi Arabia initially, not anymore, but initially for years in, in the revolution was starting to radicalize and feed you know, Jabhat al-Nusra, ISIS, and others, which made them much more dominant in the revolution. But all I can tell you from where we sat, we said, you know what? This is an opportunity for us to say, you know what? Muslims in the West have a unique responsibility. You can't do the work that we're doing at AIFD in Syria or Egypt. You wouldn't last a month uh, in doing that. But here you can. We have no excuse. 
And yet most Muslims that see us, they pat us on the back and they say, oh, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Uh, but then they don't help us because they're afraid to get targeted or whatever it is, number one. Number two, even though they realize that most of the media they listen to, be it Syrian media, Al Jazeera out of Qatar, press TV out of Iran, even though they realize those are fascist medias that they hate, the conspiracy theories and the demonization of Jews and the, the uh, anti-Western, anti-American mantras that come out of there, they've internalized. And I can't, I listen to sermons at the mosque of, of doctors and lawyers and engineers here in America, and, and they spew the same nonsense. And I confront them and I say, what's your evidence? I was in Somalia. And yet Ilhan Omar says that the biggest act of terror in 2017, she tweeted out right as she was running for Congress, she said Americans committed more acts of terror than the tribal uh, Somali gangs that she said in the country that she came from, which is not only offensive, but I was there. I was a doctor off the coast in Mogadishu in 1992 on the USS El Paso. And uh, to hear that is not only offensive. I remember going to the Islamic Society of North America convention once, and I saw a table from the Somali Relief Fund saying that America was imperializing uh, uh, the Horn of Africa through what we did in Somalia. And I went to them, I said, I was in my Navy uniform. And I said, this is offensive. What the heck are you guys talking about? That's not what we're doing there. We went to take food and we tried to save the, the folks there and liberate them. And uh, we left within a few months because it was a completely failed operation. So this is the problem is that you have the far left that hates America for a number of reasons. Now is working in what I call the red green axis. Those that want to demonize America domestically as racist and globally as, as, as imperialists and colonialists working synergistically with the propaganda arms of regimes in the Middle East that want to demonize America through the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. And those media arms are then uh, uh, taking previously rational American Muslims and others and telling them that we're the problem. And it retards and arrests reform in which they don't deal with their own problems and thus marginalize it. And that's why we have to start doing more of this work and debate across universities so that they begin to be held accountable to really prove some of the things that they think are fact, which are simply fabrication. Well, let's talk about that for a minute because as somebody who spent 15 years in higher education, 10 years working in the Middle East, I'm listening to the narrative that you've presented, and I can see why it would be appealing, especially to a white American conservative population predisposed by certain racist currents and certain media misrepresentations to be afraid of some things that you're speaking about in an authoritative way. And it would sound to them like, oh, my God, the green tide is at the gates. And I can't help but pause for a second and say, now, hang on. There are more sources for history than Bernard Lewis, who is not taken seriously by any high level scholarship dealing with primary sources. It's fine to consider in its merits, but you can't let that stand in for Middle Eastern history without at least somebody raising their hand to say, yeah, but we don't take him seriously. That can't be the term of this debate. You're using the term fascism in a very glib and loose way. I'd like to know more what you mean specifically, because I think by replacing the word nationalism with fascism, we get into some interesting problematic territory. How do you respond to Muslims in America who may have been more deeply educated in some of these topics than the average American who might say, you know, I hear that some of the truth in what you're saying and a whole lot of other stuff kind of mashed together. It starts to sound like an ideology of its own. How do you respond to that? 
Well, I mean, I think you're going to need to be more specific. I'm not sure that's sort of a, a, a dismissal of one of uh, the West's uh, preeminent scholars on Islam is, is, is helpful unless you take something that he said, then we can talk about whether it was factual or not as far as Bernard Lewis, but he's not my only source. Uh, you know, if you look at the reality of what he talks about, uh, my my grandfather was a Sharia court judge in Damascus. And uh, uh, the I, I can tell you that's on my mother's side. My father's side, Zudi Jasser, was uh, not only a, a newspaper man um, in Syria who, who started Al Hayat in Aleppo, but he had uh, a business that was nationalized. Uh, so fascism to me is not just a term. It, it is a a a, a known entity when soldiers come up and and tear down your house take you and put you in a prison which is what happened to my grandfather and lost all of his belongings because he did not uh, swear allegiance to the Ba'ath party uh, so uh, whatever you want to call it uh, the uh, Hezbollah Ba'ath the party of Ba'ath in, in Syria uh, acted in a way that uh, uh, terrorized the population. And we saw Assad continue that, uh, which his father, Hafez Assad, did. They they knew at which rate to kill people in the street. So fascism in Syria in the past seven years uh, has been basically the killing of about 1,000, 2,000 a week, the use of chemical weapons uh, in order to crush uh, a, a revolution. Uh, so uh, we, you know, when you talk about, uh, nobody's talking about a green tide. No, I've never said to demonize Islam. Uh, I've never, I've rejected to say that 1% of the population is trying to take over America through Sharia law is absurd. But what they are trying to do is weaken American forward muscular liberalism, which is, I believe that America has a, a moral obligation to advance ideas of liberty, be it towards helping the Uyghurs in China, who are being uh, systematically, genocidally uh, encamped and destroyed, or, or helping uh, the Muslims in Indonesia defeat some of the radical sects that are trying to take over some of the more secular uh, history of Indonesia that's slowly being lost because the Islamists are funding the major movements. So all I can tell you is that all I'm asking for is a fair playing field across the, 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 the battlefields domestically and globally to where whether it's Arab fascism or Islamist ideas are countered so that civil society, when, when a government leaves right now without, you know, when, when the far left in America ends up defending uh, uh, dictatorships, I tell them, well, yeah, if you don't help liberal movements on the ground, feminist movements and others, uh, and uh, you end up seeing Code Pink working with Tehran, you know, in, in Iran. Uh, what is, do they really believe that the Khomeinists help far left ideas? They're not pro, uh, they're homophobic, they're anti-feminist. So I never understood really the left's endearment with dictatorships because typically it doesn't uh, endear itself to many of the ideas uh, that they believe in. So yeah, and nobody's talking about a green tide. We're talking about basically the destruction of liberalism, classical liberalism across the Middle East that had oxygen for the first time after 2011 with the revolutions. And we had an opportunity to have what I thought should have been a new doctrine. I've called the doctrine of liberty, which is to help promote movements on the ground that could have replaced as a third pathway, not military dictatorships, that we see, which is what I mean by fascism, and not political Islamic states like we saw. And the best time, actually, I think the, the best sign I wanted to talk to you about, December 31st, 2014, we saw the defeat of the Islamist and Nahda party in, in Tunisia. That was a democratic defeat. 
I, as much as I'm anti-Muslim Brotherhood, I thought that it was wrong for the coup of El Sisi to go in and take over what happened after the Brotherhood uh, created a theocracy in Egypt. That was not a way to defeat the Brotherhood. It made them victims again, and it made them actually get a lot more uh, uh, respect than they should have because they were targeted by the fascists of the National Democratic Party in Egypt. So there are a third pathway, which is civil society, liberal ideas. Dr. Dresser, uh, as a rabbi, one of the things that you said that struck me, uh, that struck a very big accord to me was when you, uh, I don't speak Arabic um, and I, I definitely don't um, uh, read Arabic, but you mentioned how uh, a lot of people misunderstand many of the words, many of the translations of the Quran. And I believe that you mentioned uh, um, about a specific word, whether it is translated as a friend or a, a witness. Can you talk more about the literalism that often is found uh, when people read or misread the Quran? Because that's a topic that we find also a lot in the Torah. And often we find in the Torah people that are not very familiar with Hebrew, that they will read certain passages in one way or another. And there is, uh, you know, political and other ramifications to it. So what you mentioned um, striked a very strong chord in me because I think that that is something that should be taught also to non-Muslim because often non-Muslim a shaded view and understanding of Islam is what they see and hear by the majority. And maybe that is completely wrong. So we, I would love for you to speak more about maybe there are sources where people can read a proper translation of the Quran or a different translation of the Quran that is not literal. Yes, thank you. Um, you know, my father, Mohammed K. Jasser, has a, a translation called uh, the um, uh, interpretation of, of the Quran, um, the Holy Quran. And um, that had a huge impact on me. There are a number of translations. Uh, uh, Layla, um, uh, oh my gosh, her last name is escaping me right now. Um, and there's a lot of uh, different uh, translations there. And I think I always tell folks to to get six, seven translations and then figure out their own uh, based on what they feel. I mean, there's a lot of uh, different terms. For example, there's a passage there that says, cut the hands of those who steal. So in Saudi Arabia, that means literally uh, dismemberment and, and the, the, the removal of, of an arm from somebody that steals. Uh, when in fact, the, the Arabic word itself is, is uh, to sever them from society. So you could metaphor, you know, take that interpretation and mean that means put them in prison if they steal or to, to sever them from, to remove them from society. It doesn't mean necessarily to literally cut their arm. Hijab, you know, there's uh, debates uh, in my own family and most Islamic families about whether you need to cover your hair. The word hijab actually does not mean hair cover. It means a, 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 uh, um, basically concealment or a, a covering of uh, the breast on other things. So uh, it, it, it is an interpretation of what the intent of the term is versus actually the cloth itself. Uh, so 
Um, it can be a, a concealment from immorality, from corruption and other things. So uh, these, uh, these terms are very important. The, the Quranic scripture was revealed to a population that had a deep entrenched Arabic poetry. And one of the things that my father taught me, again, I'm not an expert in that Arabic poetry, but my father was, my grandfather was, and we had lots of conversations that I remember as a teen and elsewhere with them in which they were telling me the example of the poetry in which it refers uh, to some of these terms. Uh, you know, for example, uh, I remember them talking about Israel and saying, it's interesting that the only state that's discussed in the Quran is Israel. So how could we be against the state of Israel when actually the only state that's legitimized in Islamic scripture is Israel? It's discussed that the, the, the nation of Israel uh, was given to the Jewish people. Now, the borders and stuff aren't discussed there, but the bottom line is, is at least you can't reject the state like most Islamists uh, do. And, and we need to have these debates. And I think this is where the vibrant conversation. Most of the things, by the way, that are radicalized in Islam that are thought to be scripture are actually from hadith. Hamas itself, it's, it's, it's charter that says, cut the hand, you know, uh, I'm sorry, uh, kill a Jew behind every stone. That's not from the Quran. That's supposedly a, a saying of the prophet that many of us believe uh, was actually fabricated and the prophet never said. And actually one of the bigger reform, you'll see even Islamists you know, I call them neo-Islamists, uh, like the AKP in Turkey is doing a huge project trying to modernize Hadith because they realize that they can't even control their own movements in political Islam unless they begin to marginalize much of the Hadith. I mean, if you look, Sahih Bukhari is one of the largest six, seven volume sets of Hadith. And Bukhari himself is is of Pakistani, uh, uh, Indo-Pakistani origin. So the the authentic scripture that's considered hadith, you could say up to 70, 80% of those six volumes. I mean, there are hadith in which the Salafists believe the prophet said, do not pray behind a woman because her brain is half the size of a man. That is literally a hadith. And to think that the, uh, the, the prophet Muhammad said that, I just find that offensive. It's just fabricated for tribal control. And, and one of the things my father taught me, and he talks about this in his book, is there is a passage that was one of the last passages revealed in the Quran that says, today I have completed your religion. And there was a reason. One of the whole reasons we believe Islamic scripture came to be was because Christianity had lost some of the authenticity of its scripture and created a trinity and thus created a original sin concept and, and deified Jesus and other things. So it came as a course correction. And once that course correction was done back to the original monotheism of, of Judaism, back to Islam, it said, now I've completed your religion. So the interpretation is, well, then you can't 70 years to 400 years later, create all this hadith as scripture and say that that is Islam when he's completed your religion before that, number one. Number two, I then get called a Quranist. I'm not a Quranist. I believe in a lot of the oral tradition of Islam and it's hadith. Uh, and I, I tell you that because we wouldn't know how to pray if you didn't believe in some of the hadith. We wouldn't know a lot of the details of fasting. So I'm not a, a absolutist like some of the movements that are Quranists that think that the hadith is evil, which are radical movements that, uh, not radical, but it's, uh, sort of extreme movements, if you will, that uh, I, I don't, I'm, 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 most of my Islamic legalisms are Hanafi in the way I was raised. Um, but like I told you, in the first six, seven centuries of Islam, there were 4,000 schools of thought. Now there's four. 
in Sunni Islam. There's four in Shia and four in Sunni. So we're down to eight. That's not diversity. That's complete oppression. Hanafi, Shafi, Maliki, and Hanbali are the basically uh, uh, four schools of thought, and there's hardly any difference between them. It's, it's sort of dancing on the head of a pin to look at some of the differences. I have to say, I personally, and I think there are Islamic jurisprudence scholars, wouldn't agree with that characterization. I would agree that it's a substantive area for inquiry and debate. I think we have to be careful with some of these sweeping generalizations that collapse distinctions that are meaningful distinctions to serious scholarship and practice. And so let's just be cautious. So the Sufism, I mean, there's Sufism, absolutely. There's mysticism. There's, well, I mean, the reason I'm saying them as, as, as a, a, what appears to you to be a sweeping generalization is why have there been no free thinking products uh, uh, coming out of the Middle East coming out of Pakistan. There, there's no critical, uh, the reason there's not one invention of free market inventions coming out of these societies is because they've been completely fossilized and paralyzed in their critical thinking. So I don't see that, I see that as, as a statement of love for the Muslim populations that have been paralyzed in their critical thinking. Dr. Jasser, as, as a last question, where do we go from here and where are the spiritual leaders that had help uh, move uh, the needle? Because I think that it cannot be done without the help of spiritual leaders because the Muslim population worldwide is it's really, it's religious at the core. Even, even secular Muslims are connected to their traditions. Just like in Israel, so many of the so-called secular Israelis, they're still very much connected to, to Jewish traditions. So where are the religious leaders that can help in, in this direction? That's a great question. They're there, and, and uh, as Adrian pointed out, and um, sometimes brevity makes uh, uh, things seem like generalization, there are a lot of scholars uh, whether you look at Anaim and Emory University, Anaim uh, uh, has a, a whole uh, series of books on reform in Islam. And he talks about, I mean, he's informed a lot of what I've learned. Uh, if you look at Abdullah Naim's uh, work um, and uh, out of Turkey now working with Cato Institute, uh, a liberty-based uh, 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 or organization is, uh, oh my gosh, his name escapes me. Um, but uh, uh, he's, He's fan, it'll come back to me later, but uh, uh, he writes for the New York Times frequently and he's talked about liberty. Um, obviously, the fact that he came to Cato here in the U.S. and had to leave Turkey is, speaks to uh, the climate under uh, Erdogan um, there. You know, Mohammed al-Ashmawi in Egypt had a book on extremism and terrorism in Islam. He was in prison under Nasser for 15 years. The translation of his work, I think, is one of the most important books of the 20th century. Uh, in which uh, he was translated. And actually, if you look, the premise of Muhammad al-Ashmawi's work in Egypt was that you have to separate mosque and state. And he became an anti-Islamist when he noticed uh, in which he was a judge and he was a family court judge in, in Cairo. And he said, a, they, you know, in Islam, according to the Islamists, Salafis, a, a Muslim man can marry a Christian or Jewish woman, but a Muslim woman cannot marry a, a Christian or Jewish man. I disagree with that. Um, so do many scholars. 
Um, but uh, so he found himself, all of a sudden, there was a, a Muslim woman that was married to a Muslim man. The man converted to Christianity. So the court uh, uh, all of a sudden wanted to nullify her marriage. And it came to his court and he said, you know what? He asked them, do you love each other? And they said, yes. And they said, well, why are you here? They said, well, the, we have to nullify our marriage according to your law. And he said, well, he, he took off his robe and he said, I will not participate in this court. This does not make any sense. And they took him straight to prison. He was in prison for 15 years. And he wrote a book that I think is just amazing. So there are many, many. Those are three stories. There's, uh, uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, other physicians and attorneys and others that have written books. Uh, the problem is they don't have a bandwidth. They don't have uh, the... Uh, you know, they're not getting on Al Jazeera because it doesn't uh, sing the tune of the Islamists. Um, the uh, Turkish media uh, run by AKP, the Islamists of that party, don't want to hear it. And the other parties also don't want to hear it either, because I can tell you, uh, and again, to Adrian's other point earlier, you know, the, the right sometimes in the West does endear itself to some far right groups in the Middle East, be it the monarchs, or the LCCs, Mubarak's of the world, and others, and that bothers me because what happens is then you don't hear the voices of reform, um, and uh, they just want to, you know, sometimes the the cheers for a moderate monarch uh, ma makes us not pay attention to the fact that the first people to go into prison in Saudi Arabia were not the Islamists; it was actually the reformists who, who were moderates that wanted to question the authority of the king and the judges and things like that. So that's why we have to do this work here. We have to hold both parties accountable in the US and in the West to, to begin to, to work with folks that share our values across the world, not just the ones that are not gonna take us to war and uh, sort of just deal with a national security narrative instead of a liberty universal declaration of human rights narrative. I want to add in closing, because some of my questions may have sounded to some listeners as combative. I want to clarify that I actually share some of Dr. Jasser's commitments to liberal democratic participation, universal human rights, things of that nature. I would like very much for those of us, regardless of political commitments vis-a-vis -vis American politics, to find ways to have exactly these kind of substantive conversations where we can try to clear away some of the politically charged and electrifying rhetoric and get down to substantive issues. I appreciate very much Dr. Jasser's willingness to respond to some questions that were, in fact, quite a direct contradiction to what he was saying. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. I, I, and by the way, the, the, the Turkish scholar was Mustafa Akyol, A-K-Y-O-L, that I was talking about. Thank you. Dr. Jasser, uh, in conclusion, I, I, you know, there are so many things that uh, I would love to continue discussing with you and maybe for another time about similarities between Islam and Judaism, both historically, theologically, and even today. I cry every time that... Uh, um, that there is a conflict between Islam and Judaism, because I don't think that it was meant to be that way. And I don't know what is the path forward. I, 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 right now, I cannot see one, but maybe you do. Please tell me that you do. <laughs> I do. I, I have to tell you, if you talk to, Khal, you know, uh, I think his name is Khaled Labwani, a physician that was part of the rebels in Syria, and uh, now he's been targeted uh, because he's so pro-Israel. And he said, listen, the only country, uh, even more than Obama at the time, 
the only country that really not only came to the help of Syrian refugees, but actually had a solution that was not pro-Assad, that was not pro-Islamist, was Israel. And, uh, uh, you know, I think as we struggle through, you know, that was one of the best things with the Abraham Accords is the Palestinians took so much oxygen out of the conversation in the Middle East that regardless of what you think about the intent and motives of the monarchs and why they came to the table, the difference with the Abraham Accords was that for the first time, not only was there real peace, but the clerics were starting to preach it from the pulpits in the Emirates and in Bahrain and maybe in Saudi Arabia. And I think that is going to shift things because it might be still government driven. Bottom line is, is there, that the, the sermons they're giving about the need to recognize Israel are real. And, and those we agree with. And do you think that that will continue? Yeah, I don't think uh, President Biden can put that back in the bottle. I, I just don't think he can. I think that uh, they see economically. Uh, I can tell you, I've talked to startups. Uh, you know, not only Israel is known as the startup nation, there are many uh, uh, businesses that are striving to do work with the Israeli economy. And that's something that regardless of who's in the White House now, the, the monarchs realize and uh, Egypt and others, their economies are going to tank unless they start to think into the next 10, 20 years, which in, involves just like China. I mean, these are still dictatorships and I hope to see the end of these oppressive dictatorships. So I'm not as pro-Saudi as some of the folks in Washington are and pro-Emirati. Uh, but I will tell you uh, that uh, uh, as you start to have freer markets, you know, uh, China's death knell was the opening of their markets. And yeah, the government's still running, uh, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is still running the system there, uh, but free markets are gonna be the way in which the population will be able to change, hopefully. And at least in the Middle East, I think it'll happen quicker because uh, the, the population is gonna be far more able to create more civil society that it's not had so far. Dr. Zohdi Jasser is founder and president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to Conversation with the Rabbi on your favorite podcast app. You can also find the latest episodes online at conversationwiththerabbi.com. For all of us here at phx.fm, I'm Adrian McIntyre. Thanks for listening, and please join us for the next Conversation with the Rabbi.